Welcome back to Chat About. We are talking with uh, Tom Kane Jr., correct? Correct. Uh, Tom Kane Jr., who, um, well, well, I'll let you tell the story. Um, you, you seem to have quite a history, or uh, knowledgeable of the history of, of the Anishinaabe Chippewa people, and uh, your expertise is being sought out. So tell us uh, a little bit of your background and, and the things you're doing here in Bemidji and, and throughout the state of Minnesota. Well, I was born and raised in Panema, Minnesota um, in uh, the early 50s and uh, 60s. And uh, my background um, in broadcasting started over at Brown College. Um, and from there, I went over to Channel 4 News, uh, did my internship with the I-Team investigative reporting. And from there, I went over to Channel 5 News, Hubbard Broadcasting, uh, as a studio operator oh. behind the camera during the news. And I did a lot of uh, uh, freelance stuff after that. I, I worked on projects at schools, uh, film projects. Buganagishik was one, Red Lake High School was another, um, Cold Springs, another, Kellier is another, um, and just doing, you know, uh, media, media um, interviews with elders, uh, filming a language table at Panema back in 2003, which I'll present this afternoon over at the, uh, the new charter school and over at the superintendent's office there in Red Lake. And um, just, um, you know, doing historical accounts, you know, of, of what my father had left behind, Tom Kane Sr. Um, he, he, uh, he was on the Chiefs Council in the 50s, and uh, he went to the University of Minnesota in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, and uh, he, he left behind, you know, uh, some stories um, that uh, he, uh, he had given me uh, three books, and he even autographed one of them. And uh, two of them were published over at BSU back in the early 70s. Uh, one was um, a children's book, and there was um, Kent Smith, uh, that worked there at the time, uh, worked with him on on developing language, uh, Ojibwe language uh, material there at BSU. And the other book uh, was on the uh, legends, legends of Winter Count. And one of the legends I'm going to read today that he had written, and I remember him having an old typewriter he always had this old typewriter, mm -hmm. and I would play on it, play with it, and I had the kind with the ribbon on it, and it was oh. you just pluck away at it. Yeah, yeah. And he'd catch me, and he'd get after me, and tell me to quit playing with it, because <laughs> you know he he liked to write, um, and you know this this particular uh, legend that um, I want to share is. Um, I have my granddaughter, Mei Mengua, um, putting it into uh, the song that this mink is going to be singing um, in Ojibwe because my father had written it all in English. Didn't, there's a couple of Ojibwe words that he put in there. 
Okay. So, uh, without further ado, I'll go into the mink. Okay. Uh, it was early in the morning when the mink was bound the shore of a lake in search of food. He was very, very hungry as he could not find anything to eat for the last two days. He was getting desperate. He had to find something to eat. It was a nice warm spring day and it was now almost noon when he crossed the shallow river. He stopped and what did he see? A pack of muskies, large pickerel swimming in the river. They were going into the smaller creek to spawn. He watched them for a while, not knowing how to catch one of them until he saw it was hopeless to attack one of those large pickerels in despair. He traveled on and soon approached another river, ZB. In this river, there was an enormous pike. There also was too, too large to attack. He was just about to leave them when a plan formed in his crafty little head. He ran back to the first river and told the largest pickerel that a big pike had called him a long chin. The pickerel did not like to be called this name, so he told the mink to tell the pike that he had gray eyes. The mink went back to the pike and said, The pike said, You have gray eyes. And the pike said, What business has he to call me by that name when he's a slimy old fish? The mink proceeded to go back to deliver the message to the pickerel, who was very angry, in fact. He was ready to fight the large pike to the finish when the mink said, The pike also says that he will fight you any time. This instilled a blind rage in the heart uh, of the pickerel who immediately went to fight this one who was calling him names. When the pickerel, when the pike saw the pickerel, he also was blinding mad and they both fought and fought. When the river had become bloody and foamy, the mink jumped into the water, nipped first this one, then that one, and singing at the same time. Don't play with each other like that, as you're likely to shed blood. The foe was too engrossed into each other to pay much attention to him until both turned up on their bellies dead. There, said the mink. I have a feed now that will last me for a number of days. His first step was to search for a decent location to dry his fish. He found it near the bank and proceeded to haul his first to that place. Then he finished hauling. He started to sing a song at the top of his voice. I am a smart little mink. I have plenty to eat. Yes. I'm a smart little mink. A pack of wolves heard him, and the leader said, Let's go and see. Maybe the mink has something to eat. So they started in the direction from which his voice came. The wolves immediately run to the fish and some to the mink. Poor Zhang Guishi just barely escaped with his life. So the moral of the story is, don't brag too loudly about your conquest. 
Things can be easily got, can be easily lost. Very good story. How many stories does your dad write? From uh, the book over at the uh, St. Paul Historical Society, uh, he has 10 stories. Okay. So this is, you know, just one, and it, it's short compared to all the other ones. So um, there, there's, uh, um, you know, some work to be done. And, and, and in this particular story, he's saying, you know, uh, that it can be lengthened. But um, what I'd like to share with the charter school, I like to put, have them put it into Ojibwe, mm. from English okay. to Ojibwe. Yeah. And then, um, you know, compose the, the little song that he's singing into Ojibwe. So okay. uh, that's that's my goal, you know, okay. with this material when he says it could be lengthened. Well, you're talking to me on a Thursday morning, January 18th. This is the start of a busy couple days. Um, you're really going to get uh, the storytelling uh, history out there. Uh, tell us about some of the other places you're going here in the next couple days. Um, I'm going over to, at noon today, I'm going over to the Beltrami County uh, History Museum. Um, they're uh, sponsoring a... Uh, a bag, brown bag uh, workshop on Chippewa, Ojibwe music. Um, I um, did some research um, in uh, going back to the 18 and 1900s on it, um, uh, focusing on Francis Densmore came to Panema in, uh, in 1908 and recorded some of our songs in, in the, um, the campgrounds. And... Uh, one one thing that um, that she talks about is about the powwow um, that she um, interviewed somebody at the powwow at the Port of July in Red Lake, which one had described to her such as the midday initiation initiation ceremony of the first degree um, in 1908. So, um, in from uh, from that uh, particular celebration. Um, we now use one of the first degree songs when at the end of the power, we, what we call traveling song. So um, that stands out, you know, for yeah. me as far as part of the Medes, uh first degree uh, ceremonies. And uh, another um, uh, account that she talked about is the giveaway. The giveaway uh, is calico material. Um, which was really highly prized by back then, you know, from the French fur traders trading with, you know, the Anishinaabe people. And I did find in, uh, in my research also Moose Dung in 1841 had um, traded uh, uh, calico material with um, Vincent Roy Jr., um, who was a fur trader, um, and he got his start with his dad, Vincent Roy Sr., in 1795 um, in the Red River Valley. So uh, those are a couple of um, things that she's talked about, and also um, she talks about two of the most traditional tribes in the Midwest that she has encountered, and one of them was in Wabashing. Wabashing 
um, back in the 1800s um, was a community uh, just north of Panima, and that's where I grew up. And she calls it Wabashing. And, okay. uh, and the other one was Lac de Flambeau, was, you know, one of the two most traditional villages that she had re- recorded at. Are there still uh, people today writing, writing these kinds of stories? Uh, from uh, what I what I know, um, there are a couple um, people. One um, that I can think of right off the top of my head is Anton Troyer. Um, wrote a book um, of Red Lake um, called Warrior Nation, and I was on the Constitution Committee at the time, and the Constitution Committee hired him to write the book um, mm. of Warrior Nation. And I later become uh, the Constitution Coordinator, and I came in and interviewed here a couple of times on it. So um, that is one person that I know that writes Ojibwe material, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, all the tribes in, in the state of Minnesota, all the Ojibwe tribes, that is. Yeah. Um, if somebody wants to see, you got a book with you today, for example, but if somebody wants to read up on this stuff, uh, you noted the St. Paul um, History Center's got some of those uh, books, and I'm sure there's still some books of some sort at Bemidji State, other libraries? Um, uh, I I also um, found some stuff over at the Indian Museum in Washington, oh. Washington, D.C. Okay. I uh, found some maps. And also, um, I've been to the Library of Congress and found material there in the Smithsonian. And in fact, I donated a film that I did with Vine Deloria Jr. 29 days before he passed. And he has about 20 books that he had written. One of them was Custer Died for Your Sins, his, one of his first books. And I, I was brought in to interview him, and, and he talks about all the sacred sites in the Black Hills from his worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I donated it because they named uh, the Smithsonian Library after him, after he had passed. So what better place to have his last speech in? Yeah. And then he autographs a book for me and thanks me for filming his last speech. And I, I asked him, I said, Vine, I said, can I pose with a picture of you? Because he was sitting on a buffalo robe in his sunroom. And he said, sure. He said, go uh, have his wife uh, go get her camera. And she brought it back, and the camera was dead. <laughs> and he goes, go find some batteries, Barb. So off she goes, brings it back. She said, fine, this is a brand-new camera. I don't know how to put the batteries in. So he takes it and gives it to me. He said, what better person to fix the camera than the cameraman? <laughs> so I put the batteries in, handed it to Barb, click. That was the last photograph ever taken of Vine Deloria Jr., him and I sitting on a buffalo rope. Because oh. when she does the the uh, collage of his life's work, she puts it up on the uh, wall um, at his funeral, at his um, afterwards, and him and I are sitting on a buffalo rope and Robin, it fades to black. The rest is history. Mm, wow. So that that is my highlight of my film work, is, yeah. is filming him. 
and uh, I, I've shared it with all the government agencies in Washington. I flew there, you know, and, and hand-delivered them to the Library of Congress, to the Smithsonian Indian Museum, the Department of Interior, um, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, um, there, you know, it's all there. All my material is there. Also, another person I filmed is Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart on historical trauma of uh, the boarding schools. Mm-hmm. So I also shared that in Washington. So I, I do have material, you know, and I even sent that one to the White House, to Barack Obama. Oh, wow. It never came back. So it's there. Very cool. Well, preserving history is really important, really. Um, and any final words for the next generation coming up about, uh, you know, preserving the history and maintaining your culture? Um, for me, you know, would be a good advice for, you know, the younger generation is um, focus, you know, stay focused and get into uh, a f- um, frame of mind like time traveling. You know, when you get into that frame of mind of, of time traveling, you know, it becomes really intriguing. You know, it, it doesn't feel like work. You know, yeah. you, you just do that, you know. Um, and uh, it, I can go into a garage sale and come out with some history. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's just, you know, where I'm at, you know, with, with my research. You know, from uh, the Hawaiian Islands, I found a book over 100 years old and bought it and brought it back. So, um, I, I, well, you know, here's a good example right here. I found that at a trading post in Shakopee. So, um, I showed the people over at the History Center here, and they were really like, oh, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate you coming in and sharing with us today. It was great information, a wonderful story. He's Tom Kane. I think we can safely call him a historian at this point, um, doing a great job of preserving a lot of uh, memories of a lot of really important people and really important ideas. Tom, thank you for being here today. Okay, miigwech, Kevin. Chatabout has been sponsored by Bemidji Chrysler Center, Honda of Bemidji, and First National Bank Bemidji. Coming up Monday, we kick off the week by previewing the Bemidji School Board meeting with Jeremy Olson, the Superintendent of Schools.